0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is Kristen Bell. A true force of nature, Kristen is a classically trained actor who landed a role on Broadway in a revival of The Crucible with Liam Neeson and Laura Linney before she even graduated college. On a whim, she and a friend moved to L.A. soon after, and she's been starring in TV and movies ever since. From her breakout role as the teenage private detective Veronica Mars to Princess Anna in the Frozen movies to the more recent Eleanor Shellstrop on NBC's The Good Place, Kristen has made her name by being plucky, relatable, and when the role calls for it, very funny. I caught up with Kristen Bell in Los Angeles where she lives with her husband, the actor and podcaster Dax Shepard, and their two young daughters.
1: Currently? I'm in a motorhome parked on our front lawn at all times because I married a hillbilly. Actually, we just got it uh, a couple days ago. Over, um, over quarantine, his main objective was to buy a motorhome because we do go camping and go to the glamorous sand dunes a couple times a year. So we we rent motorhomes. But we found a good deal on one in Texas. He went down to get it. He drove it back. And it is now I'm not gonna I'm not joking with you right now, Alec. Look at where it's sitting. So this is the motorhome, right? Yeah. And that's my house. That's my house. So that's my front window.
0: Wow. He, we, we, to the definition of hillbilly is you have a house, you're both working, you're both doing well. You buy a house worth millions of dollars in LA and your husband's like, I wanna have a motorhome on the front lawn, baby.
1: Um, I'm lucky this man has all his teeth. Honestly, I'm lucky he has all his teeth. That's the truth. But I will give him credit. She's gorgeous. Her name is big brown. She's absolutely shit brown color. And it's sitting right outside my front window. And I I don't hate it. I love it. We we come out here and play in it. And we're going to plan on camping in it a ton. And uh, I'm not I'm not mad at it.
0: How's the quarantine going for you with your family?
1: shockingly okay i mean you know mainly because of our privilege we don't live in a one room apartment we like have a backyard we can go outside in and, and uh, my my kids can you know run around the house again because we've got a house with a couple bedrooms so i'm incredibly grateful for that my my husband and i started out quarantine like in the midst of a big fight, like, you know, those sort of not fight, but yes, fight those like, uh, every three years, that sort of marriage house cleaning that has to happen where like the resentments have been built and it's coming to a head and you're both going to go back to the therapist. And we were like right there and then the doors closed on the whole world. And we were like, Oh shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're hiking through a cave and the walls collapse and you're stuck inside the cave together.
1: Yeah, it was intense to say the least, but it did force us to uh, talk vulnerably in order to get over some of the resentments and the sort of housekeeping that needed to happen uh, about how we were not meeting each other's love languages, et cetera, et cetera. And we did it uh, pretty well.
0: How does he not meet your love language.
1: Well, or I don't meet his. That's the question. So everybody has different ways that they uh, feel that they are loved, right? For me, it's pre-production. If if I come home from work and you have ordered me food, there's a burrito in the fridge for me. I'm like, damn, this guy loves me. He was thinking she might be home from work and she might want a burrito. Like he thought about me. For him, it's meeting him at the door. He could give a shit what's in the fridge. He doesn't care if I've ordered him dinner. So if I I'm sitting up in my bedroom, or I'm playing with the girls, or I'm on my computer or watching TV, and I don't sort of like meet him with a hug. He's like, I could care less what's in the fridge. I want to see you. I want his is very much physical affection, as in like eye contact, hand on the shoulder when we're on the couch. He wants to be snuggling. Yeah, say I love you, um, which we do all the time. But you know, after 13 years, it does become a sort of passing phrase, which we try not to make it. Whereas I'm less um, physical, I don't need anyone to jump up. I want, I'm like, everybody stay seated. I'm fine. I'm the mom and I'm, you know, doing my own thing and I want to take care of everybody else. But it was just stuff like that. And I would be like, but I ordered you dinner. He's like, but I don't care about dinner. I want you to get up off the couch and give me a hug. And so it's those little things, love language wise, where we have to remember that the other person needs something that we don't need. So we have to think in the other person's love language in order to properly show what we feel.
0: One time I was at a party and Seinfeld is at another table. They cut up the couples so that Jessica was at my table. And uh, I'm sitting there with Jessica Seinfeld and we're talking. And I said to her, you realize that if you look him in the eye every day and look him in the eye, take it and really, really let it count, let it breathe and say, Jerry, I love you more than anything in the world. He will do whatever you ask him to do for the rest of your life. And she started to cry. She had like tears in her eyes. Like I'm from that school. Like I want you to still be my girlfriend. I Mm -hmm. want the romance. I want, Mm -hmm. we have, my wife and I are locked in a big house with five kids. So as I tell people, it's like the little rascals meets the shining every day uh, here at my house. But I said to my wife, and if you just said that to me uh, t- took 2 seconds to tell me that every day i could go on that that's the oxygen that i need you know
1: yeah and it's it's really healthy to be able to communicate that to your partner and not to make any no you know no one can be generalized or, i don't want to make this broad and sweeping but i've known a lot of uh, a group of men like that where it actually is quite simple it's just presence it's being Uh, present with them and communicative in the simplest way of just a reminder that the foundation exists and that you are still attracted to and love them. Whereas my love language is like, let's go go. I'm a human doing and not a human being. I'm working on that in therapy, becoming less of a human doing.
0: Why? Now, what do you think? What are the pitfalls of the one versus the other? Why?
1: Well, a human being exists more. A human doing has a huge to-do list and is accomplishes a ton. But then maybe on your deathbed, you're like, did I even experience any of it? Because I've got my fingers in a lot of different pots and I'm going, going, going all the time. And that's why like, I think of someone, order them dinner, scratch it off my list. That proves I love them. That doesn't work for everyone. <laughs> that doesn't work for everyone. Uh, like, I'm learning.
0: For you, was show business in the blood in the family? Was there show business people in your family?
1: No. Well, my father is a news director, still is. Um, so the he was the only person that was ever... I mean, he was on the radio for a while. He's got a voice like yours. It's just smooth and wonderful. And I was the only one that ever um, showed any signs of wanting to perform. And it wasn't really even wanting an audience so much as I sang a lot when I was little. I have a very musical brain and a very I'm very auditorily sensitive like I can't really have a conversation when music is on I feel almost like I'm hearing voices inside my head because such a big portion of my brain focuses on the music which is annoying and also great but so I sang a lot when I was little and then my mom got me into voice lessons and I studied like operettas for a year or two and then in my ninth grade year, my teacher gave me after-school homework of Greenfinch and Linnet Bird from Sweeney Todd, and I had never sang in English before. I was only singing in Italian, and I was like, "Oh my god, what is this? I can understand this character's perspective." So then I became obsessed with musical theater. But again, no one else did it, and my father was the only one that was hesitant. Not in a way that would ever hold me back, but just like he hires and fires the journalists at his station. And so he'll watch a new news reporter and be like, I can't hire her. I can't hire him. And he was scared of the rejection. But other than that hesitation, everyone was like, sure, we don't know what you're doing, but uh, good luck. And they were pretty supportive, but no one else was uh, in performance of any kind.
0: Actor Kristen Bell. That early introduction to Sondheim took her from the suburbs of Detroit to New York City. Another actress with a flair for comedy is Ellie Kemper. We talked about her getting cast as the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt.
1: They basically said we're developing a new show. We don't know what it is, but, oh, g- but good to have met you. We met in May and then I met them again in July and they pitched the actual idea to me. What'd you think? Well, I thought they were joking. Because the, the premise of the show <laughs> oh, I'm buried in a hole. I know. And I was like, they were pranking me.
0: You can hear the rest of my conversation with Ellie Kemper at thing.org. After the break, we talk about what advice Kristen offers to aspiring actors today. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. We're talking today with Kristen Bell. She discovered her love for acting in middle school
1: I started doing a lot of like local theater in Detroit, and then w- it was less of a Like putting a stake in the ground saying, this is what I'm going to do. And what happened was I was 16 and went into Mr. Franklin's office in my high school when he's like the guy who helps you pick colleges in the high school. And he was like, well, you want to pick, you know, a, a college that a career that something you love. So what do you love? And I was like, well, I love doing musical theater. He goes, well, you can study theater. And I was like, great so much. Thanks. Bye. Like I never it was it just occurred to me. It never occurred to me to change what I loved. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And where'd you go? NYU. I applied early admission to NYU. And I told my parents I sent in my Northwestern application and I didn't because I wanted to I put all my focus on early admission in NYU. Thankfully, I got in. Uh, then I moved to New York and I was in the Tisch School of the Arts for two and a half years. And then I left my the middle of my third year because I booked Tom Sawyer, and then The Crucible with Liam Neeson and Laura Linney, and then Reefer Madness, and then a couple shows in New York, and then moved to D.C. to do the Kennedy Center uh, Sondheim Rep, and then I moved to L.A. on a whim. So it was all theater.
0: You didn't finish NYU.
1: No, I did not. I do not have a degree in anything.
0: I went there. Yeah, I went to GW in Washington for a pre-law program, but finished in theater at NYU. I left there in 1980, but went back in 1994 to graduate, 14 years later.
1: Did you have to take a class? Because so much of their grades are on uh, attendance. No,
0: they waived all my acting classes for my practical experience acting the last 14 years. And I had to write a paper, and I wrote a 65-page paper on the applicability of method acting to the career of someone who was still active in film and theater. And there was only one person who met the criteria. And I interviewed Pacino for nine hours at his house up in Westchester. Oh, my God. I wonder if for you, I mean, you're obviously from a very different generation than I am, and you're much younger than I am. What's your advice to young actors? Because I sometimes struggle with that, whether they should study acting in college. It's expensive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I'll say to them, if I had it to do over again, get a degree in a subject where you can just read a lot of great books, philosophy, literature, history, because this is the great time for you to read. Because as I've gotten older, the thing I missed most is time to read. Yeah. And then I'll say to them, go take acting classes somewhere. How do you feel about that?
1: I think that's actually now in my infinite wisdom after turning 40 I think that that's probably the right thing to say because previously my only critique of NYU I, was that I didn't feel that they gave um enough practical actors experience like we once in a while had like a casting director come in but it was really like there was this you were so built up because you were studying all these fancy plays and performing them but you didn't realize how small your world was. And I remember sneaking out of classes to go audition because I had gotten an agent right when I moved to New York. And I also, it was in my favor that I looked A lot younger than I was. So when I was 18, I was still playing 13. And I remember sneaking out, and once I was caught, and they were like, You shouldn't be auditioning. And I'm like, Well, what the hell are you training me for? Like, if I'm not supposed to be auditioning, because the nerves you feel when you audition can be debilitating for the vast majority of us. Like, even, I mean, I still have them sometimes, but definitely had them early on. And every actor I know that's working was like, Oh, yeah, I used to get super nervous, so nervous that I'd, you know, choke on my word. Or that I would burp or that I would have the shakes or whatever. I think you need to learn how to handle that as much as you need to learn how to study these classic plays. I think that's an incredible, like, just getting a hold of your being is incredibly important. And I didn't, I don't feel like there was enough stress put on that about how do you manage your cortisol levels when you really, really want something. So I think getting into scary situations, I was in this beautiful little like, um, bubble of studying Alexander technique. And when I explained that to my husband and he was like, well, what is that? I'm like, well, it's sort of like body work. And you're, you know, you're in like loose clothes and you're touching each other. And he's like, you did this in fucking college. And so now he always jokes. He's like, let's just throw some sweatpants on. Let's work it out Alexander style. But I think that's very safe. And I, I don't think acting is safe or should be safe.
0: The first job I had, I got a job on a soap opera in New York, and I thought to myself, this is, I mean, privately, I'm sitting there on the set, and I say the same thing every day. I come in here, I'm like, oh, Greta, I love you. Oh, God, Greta, if you only knew how much I love you, Greta, please, understand. And I'd be on the subway trying to memorize my lines. It was all such a pain in the ass. And then it hit me. This is hard to do well. Mm. The whole Uta Hagen respect for acting thing. Like, the first thing you got to get to is that it's not easy, even if you have a shitty part. I tell people, just be one of the best things in the movie, even if yeah. your part is, you w- walk in and go, dinner is served.
1: And learning where you fit in, too, because I also find there's so much bringing people up in a lot of like acting classes that I took of like, well, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? And to be honest, the thing that I've learned mainly in film and television is when I read a script now, I'm not looking at it from my point of view. I'm looking at it from the director's point of view because I'm going, and and here's the other thing is sometimes it doesn't give a hoot. If I feel it, it matters if the audience feels it. So like I could say, I want to do a hundred more till I feel it. And I hope that someone in the crew would go, nope, no thanks. We need to go home to our families because we are also human beings employed in the same industry that you are. It doesn't matter. You have to, you have to trust in the director that they're getting what they need to get. But you really have to be thinking about is the audience feeling this and whether you need to just trust the director, you need to watch the take, whatever it is, but it's about how you fit into a bigger story. And I don't necessarily know that that was ever taught to me until I started getting really good direction and saying, well, I feel like my character would do this, and then like, you know, I don't know, someone like I was on Deadwood in the in the very beginning of my career, and David Milch would be like, well, I don't, I, but but this is what I need to have happen. Milch, oh my god, the best! i his like eight rescue dogs following oh, him around on the set. I. Don't know how I got this job undead when I only did a couple episodes, but it was a very cool role. It was like a young girl who came into town with her brother and she starts working at the whorehouse and then she tries to like take everyone for a ride and she sleeps with Kim's character and she stabs Powers Booth. And it was and then I get beaten and shot in the center of town. Right. So I only read the sweet scenes. And then when I got the role, I read the sort of other side of her where she goes crazy. And I said to him, like, I don't know if I can do this. And he goes, no, I know you can. And then I went home and I felt so insecure. I'm like, does he think I'm evil? Because these scenes are really evil. So I had a great time working with him. But I also found that he was one of the kindest people I've ever worked with every Friday on Deadwood. That was a difficult show to shoot. It was in Santa Clarita. There were a ton of horses, which means there's shit smell everywhere. There was atmo- the atmosphere that they pump in, which means everyone's breathing in dust. All of these things, tight corsets, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't physically comfortable, long hours. And every Friday at lunchtime, he would gather everybody into the one of the saloons and I would watch him give away $10,000. He'd put in a fishbowl, all these little tickets, and he'd say, okay, for a $1,700 prize, Joe grip. And he'd say, thank you so much for working here. I love you guys. Okay. For a $200 prize. And he would just give away a ton of his money as he has created numerous shows. I love that idea. And you know what? Can I tell you something? So I said to myself, when I saw him do it, I was like, I'm going to do that. If I ever make it, I'm going to do that, that I'm going to do that one day. This is going to be my example. And I've done it on my last couple shows and it feels you can't imagine a better feeling. And I, asp- I did it for uh, I just finished a movie called Queen Pins that was an indie that spent all of our budget on COVID safety. And I mean, COVID safety like you have never seen because I was so hesitant to work. We shot it. We had a huge COVID team. Everyone got PCRs every day, not just Rapids. You had to have a KN95. They had to bring in air scrubbers every hour. To scrub the entire air in the room, no more than 12 people. And I knew it was stressful for people. And I was like, I'm going to milch it. I'm going to milch it. And it was so (laughs) wonderful. But here's what I did, because I also from, you know, just reading Freakonomics, you just have to incentivize people. So I said to our COVID consultants who were from UCLA, I was like, what if we just incentivize them? What if I get... Grubhub to give us everybody $250 gift certificates. So they're encouraged to eat at home. Yeah, And then the next week we get the in and out truck. And then, then and then the other week, subsequent weeks, I put five or 10 grand in a bucket. And I say, this is the, I did not get COVID this week bucket. And you're only in here if you didn't get COVID and we pull a name and I got to say, nobody got COVID because everyone wanted to be in the bucket.
0: Oh, Well, I'm sure some people were sitting there going, well, it's it's the least she can do is put five grand into the fishbowl with all that frozen money she has. Honest
1: to God. Oh, you'd think, right?
0: I've been doing uh, some animated films. I did the movie Boss Baby, and we're just finishing the sequel now. People say to me, how do you feel doing that? I'm like, this is the greatest movie I've ever made. I love doing those movies because the audience is so receptive. It's kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And here you are to have been part of this, like, unbelievably titanic success. Was that fun for you?
1: So fun. It's been fantastic and it's been the biggest honor to be somehow important to children that you've never met so much so that you can make someone's day. Or that you can send a kid who is in the hospital a message and it it really, you can bring a smile to someone's face and that is something I do not take lightly. I have a lot of respect for the fact that I have that little superpower now and I use it as much as I possibly can.
0: You know, your generation, you're so youthful looking and you're just turned 40 and I'm gonna ask you about that. What's that been like for you in terms of, cause you still look so young. Mm -hmm. What's changed for you about the business and what you want I you've been doing it for 22 years.
1: So in the beginning of my career, up until the last, I would say, five or six years, I was just hungry. And I was willing to stay on that hamster wheel of I need to read everything. Who got that? Who should I be meeting? Is there a new best director that I should be having a general with? All the things that you think you need to do. And I was getting offered a lot of romantic comedies. Or things that were, I felt like I had done and I I just desperately wanted like the new Michelle Williams script. You know what I mean? I was like, I just want to be like an indie actor and I want to be like respected. And my husband would sit in bed and he's like, why don't you stay in your lane? It's so much funner when you stay in your lane. You, you, like, you can spread your wings, but don't disregard what you have, because some right. girl who's an actress right now is like, God, I just want to be a goofy girl in a rom-com. Somebody is saying that right now, and you have that opportunity. Don't shit on that. And, like, also sometimes he's like, Kristen, you're not as good of an actress as Michelle Williams, so she's going to get the part. And I'm like, okay. Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa. Your husband said that to you?
1: Yeah, but he's not I'm wrong. Gonna call him. No, he's right, though. Also, he's... He's just like, and guess what else? Michelle Williams can't be as quirky and as funny in a rom-com as you can. Like everyone has a lane. And he was, he's all about moving into acceptance mode and, you know, expectations are resentments waiting to happen. All these little AA phrases he has that are, that are helpful when applied correctly. And I just felt like, oh yeah, it really is just my ego that I want to be like, I don't know if it's acknowledged or be in every category. And the moment I said, you know what? I have a thing right? I have a thing and it's a quirky, weird, funny, bubbly, fun thing that can be snarky. And I, I love doing it. I do it pretty well. Why not lean into it? And that is when I felt like I started becoming happier when I stopped trying to be in everyone else's category.
0: But what's the little piece of you in the corner? Like forget about Michelle Williams. What's the thing you, there's a part of you that would really love to do something that you just don't think you'll ever get a chance to do that you really would love to try?
1: Oh, I mean, something dark and serious, obviously, because I am a pretty classically trained actor and I would love to do that. And I did that in the beginning. I mean, Deadwood was a little that heavy drama really interests me, but... I also know that I have a five and a seven-year-old. It is a priority to me how I act when I go home. And it is true that sometimes you can take a little bit of baggage home or you'll just be in a sour mood. But if you're making a comedy with Mike sure all day, chances are you're going to come home in a pretty good mood. You know what I mean? And I've just kind of prioritized my, my well-being as Kristen. Like, I, I always like to say I like being an actress, but I love being Kristen. So I've prioritized that a little bit more than my, like, desire to spread my wings or prove to people that I can be some dramatic actress. What do you want to do that you haven't done?
0: Um, Sing on Broadway.
1: Girl, you can do that.
0: No, no, no.
1: Do you like singing? Can you have, like, a proper, more musical theater singing voice if you don't put on an affectation?
0: I just don't have the vocal qual- I don't have the chops and the breath it's it's like you know that music and singing and and being able to imitate people and impersonate people there's a fine line between the two it's an ear you have an ear and I have a good ear and I and I love music and I, I listen to people sing and I go oh my god I just to be able to do that but I don't have the equipment
1: But to you do know that. what I that it, it. it is a muscle I mean look nobody's going to wake up one morning and sound like Norbert Leo Butts right that doesn't happen to everybody but no. I will say it is a muscle it is like a body bicep. Like when I'm out of like when Adina and I get called for to do some concert, we call each other and we're like, oh, fuck, when's the last time you practiced? Because the reality is you shave notes off your top and you shave notes off your bottom, just like you do a bicep. Like you can if you pump iron every day, your muscle gets bigger, your breath control, your ability to um, tap into your diaphragm and your your simplified your vocal range. It goes up with practice, and it, it is possible, if you have an ear for tone, it is possible to expand that muscle.
0: Well, there's times, I will say, that, I mean, uh, you know, you relax, you get some sleep, you're rested, your voice, just, your vocal cords fall into a certain line. There's times that I have, you know, and I, I'm not uh, being cute about this, but there's times that I would sing in the shower, and I think, my God, listen to me. My God, can you believe this? I'm like, you know, Charles Aznavour has nothing on me.
1: My husband is going through a singing phase and nothing is cuter to me. So he's borderline tone deaf, but he loves to sing. Okay, and here's what happened. Let me set the scene in my household. My kids could give a shit about Frozen, truly and completely. They don't want me to talk about it. They don't want to know I'm in it because you're supposed to rebel against your mom. Things she does are uncool. So they're into a ton of, they love Boss Baby, but like Frozen, they're like, it's fine. So I can't even sing to them. I try to sing them to sleep. They're like, once in a while, they'll let me do it. And I'm like, I- I'm, you know, obviously that's a burn on me. So we're doing this <laughs> new um, cartoon for Stephen Conrad called Ultra City Smiths. And it's a musical. And he asked Dax and I if we'd be involved because we were weirdly like just those people who didn't know Stephen Conrad, but were like championing the Patriot when it was out. Like, nobody's watching this show. It's brilliant. Um, So he contacted us. We were super flattered. He's like, it's a musical. Um, He hires us. We're playing this married couple. And then Dax did a recording the other day and he sang for Stephen Conrad, like just a little bit of he sang some Waylon Jennings or something. And Stephen was like, that was great. That was really great, Dax. This is going to work out. Well, Dax came home in the absolute cutest mood I've ever seen him in. And he has been asking me to tape him on my telephone singing songs and he's been posting things online of him singing songs he's in no yes
0: on an instagram
1: yes and it's so i'm gonna go watch it please watch it it's so cute the whole time he was driving big brown home he was like he's got his camera on his little dashboard and he's like on a gray bus
0: yeah please release me let me go
1: it's so cute to me Ugh.
0: Now, Veronica Mars is when I first became aware of you, and that was a big success for you. And then you did Good Place. You know, and you also come from a generation of people which are a lot more self-disclosing about some of the things you've gone through in your life. Mm, And I'm like, you know, a long time ago when I was first coming there were people who they just stayed behind that wall. They were mm-hmm. like, you were never going to find that anything about their private life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And also there were uh, publicity arms of studios and networks that worked aggressively to protect the reputations of their stars.
1: That does not exist anymore. As
0: opposed to Warner Brothers, where you go down one hallway and there's the movie division, and you go down another hallway and there's the TV division. Then you go down another hallway and TMZ is there.
1: Come on. I know I have such an issue with that as well. I'm like, how do you run all of these organizations? Why well, do
0: you want me to work for you in then you're trying to kill me.
1: I could not agree more. My husband and I disagree on 99% of things in the world. We argue all the time, but we do not go to bed angry and we have a beautiful marriage and we are able to make it work because we have this mutual respect. We have uh, a desire for vulnerability. When we first started dating, we tried to keep it secret because we didn't want to be hunt. That was when like TMZ was starting, you know, like 13, 14 years ago when they were starting to like hunt people really on the street with cameras and it was scary Mm -hmm. and it just feels predator and prey. Um, But after a while, especially when social media, you sort of started to own it and you were able to post your own things, we kind of went through this little metamorphosis, not with our children because we keep them very separated and we keep Mm -hmm. them very private. But I have a big, big maternal uh, chip on my shoulder and I feel like if I... I, I'm okay being vulnerable and talking about my flaws and my marriage, especially if it can be an example for someone else. So I'm ready to like, I guess I'm willing to take that hit like Dax and I talk about what we fight about publicly I talk about my fears and anxiety about the fact that I suffer from anxiety and depression and every time I'm honest and vulnerable the reaction that I get not from like the TMZ crowd but the reaction I get from just uh engagement with fans or on social media or whatever is always positive and it keeps me going and a a reminder of like Oh, yeah, we're really looking to connect. And I suppose that I've just put the connecting with people above any sort of like clandestine existence that I could give you... Uh, Because I wouldn't be good at that anyway. I'm too much of a talker. You know what I mean? It doesn't bother me so much to be such an open book. I kind of like it. But I also
0: think that what is the silver lining of some kind of social media like Instagram? Well, it's kept the paparazzi away from my house because I'm posting all the pictures online myself.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I've preempted that. There's nothing you can get unless my wife is pregnant or unless you get me, uh, you know, slipping on the ice and falling on my ass or something, you know, something that you're after.
1: But hopefully your wife will post that picture of you falling and they still won't have to get it. You know My I mean. wife would make a
0: movie out of that, believe me. She, kind of, <laughs> she loves to let the air out of me, shall we say. But one thing about this age of this kind of self-disclosure is that it gives me a chance. I'm going to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how I didn't drink and I didn't take drugs all through high school, very little, because I couldn't afford it. I didn't have any money. And when I finally had money in my pocket from working in this business, I had to, I, if I had a hundred bucks in my pocket, I was like, well, let's go have that drug and alcohol problem we've been putting off for the mm-hmm. last five years, you know? But what do you say to people in terms of how they can seek help? Do you actively try to support people that way and say, you gotta go and ask for help?
1: Oh, you mean like if I'm talking about like anxiety and depression or or a, or a anything like that?
0: Anything. Whatever you, the issue is.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, look, I'm also like having just come out of like early stage motherhood. I, you know, there's so much of I did not experience it, but I know the world of like feeling insecure as a new mom and you're not doing this right. So I try to be very clear in that there are many different ways to find a solution to a problem. Let's just start with the basic math. Right. Some people people, we know people, we have people in common that have stopped drugs and alcohol that have not gone to AA. And we, we also have people in common that did need it. Like, you know, my husband does. And There are many different ways to find a solution. So if it's like someone saying I'm depressed or anxious or I'm having problems in my marriage, if I were to respond or if I were to say anything on the subject, it would be there are a variety of resources out there. If we're talking about anxiety and depression, one is um, talk to someone close in your family. Open up more. Start exercising. Exercising is one of the best things you can do for your mental health. You can talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. A medication may be in your future. It may not be because that's not the only way that's how I solve it I've been on an antidepressant for years but that's not for everyone and I'm very clear about that um and then I'm also just a big I'm a I'm a therapy pusher I love therapy I am I talk, think it's talk therapy yeah old I think therapy. it's great I mean also, I'm not opposed to any of the new kinds. I just don't know much about them. But I know when I, I know when I have a therapist who, the first time I sat down with him, his name is Harry. He's an excellent human being. I started talking, and he sat down and he goes, "Hold on one second. I'm just going to tell you. If you want me to take your hundred dollars per session and listen to you vent, I am so here for you. If you'd like a solution, just let me know." And I was like, "Uh, who? What?" who does this man think he is being so blunt with me? But I was also very attracted to that kind of personality, which is obviously why I married my husband, the blunt cut to the chase talkers because I'm not that person. I'm a rambler. So when I said that, I i mean, when he said that, I was so intrigued. I was like, well, wait a minute. I, of course I want a solution. He was like, okay, well, I can tell you this. You plus this issue equals chaos. Are you in the room or is this issue in the room? And I was like, Oh Okay. Um, I guess uh, this issue isn't in the room, this person or thing I was talking about. I am. And it just, I like the idea that are, there are solutions out there. I'm a, I'm a fixer, and I get very excited about, okay, well, that's not working. Pivot. Find a new way to do it, because there's always a better way to do it.
0: Kristen Bell. Last year, she launched Happy Dance, a CBD bath and body product line designed specifically to offer some self-care for other busy moms. And she recently published her first children's book, The World Needs More Purple People, in hopes of encouraging more conversations in these polarized times about what we have in common. More on that after the break. If you like Here's the Thing, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. You can subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Actor Kristen Bell has been with her husband, actor Dax Shepard, since 2007. The two are very open about the good, the bad, and the challenges of a long-term relationship. I wanted to ask Kristen if it helps... To have a partner who is also in the business.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, both of us have uh, ego sensitivity issues and it sort of depends on uh, how often we've worked. If one of us hasn't worked in six months, one of us can start to feel low. But again, we're both aware of that because of therapy. I would say for the most part, I see it as a plus and perhaps that's because of who the man Dax is is, Um, but I know that he, like, we're not, uh, he doesn't get down on me about hours because he knows if I say I'm home at three, this scene could take till ten. It's nice not to have to deal with confusion if you have someone who's working a nine-to-five job. It's nice to
0: be with somebody that gets it. Yeah, that gets it it.
1: And also, Dax is a really good director. He uh, has written and directed a couple movies. He wrote a, like a love letter to me. Or his first movie was this um, independent movie called Hit and Run. And it was about a guy who was in a witness protection program and his girlfriend finds out and they have to go on this chase uh, away from the bad guys. And it's like, does she want to go? Does she still trust him? And it literally was a metaphor for our first year of dating I didn't know what a drug addict was or how they operated. I mean, I grew up in a small town in in Michigan just outside of Detroit where it was like, well, drugs are bad. Bad people do drugs. And that was the end of the conversation. And I didn't understand anything about addiction. So when he used to sit at the dinner table again and tell me like, oh, this one time I I did 70 pills, I lost three days and I didn't show up for Christmas, I would be so terrified. And I didn't, I was like, how can I trust you? And he's like, well, but that's not me anymore. Anyways. Cut to Harry saying, "You know what? All she needs to hear. You're saying how it was. All she needs to hear is how it is now. You need to have that last sentence on the end of your story. And by the way, I didn't show up for Christmas. Wow! I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Then she won't freak out. But the the point is, I was really I had a lot of trust issues with him our first year, and so he wrote this like story about this girl who doesn't who finds something out about her partner and doesn't think she can trust him and." The point is, he's a very good director. I trust his creativity implicitly so I can have him read things. I, he coaches me on auditions, and that's a very safe space for me to be in because he can give me some really hard direction or just saying, you're doing too much or you're, you're trying too hard, and I know he wants what's best for me, so I'm able to get really difficult direction and do a better job um, in my career because of him.
0: Now, one last question. Tell us about The World Needs More Purple People with Benjamin Hart. Listen,
1: I'm not a writer. I am an orator at best and barely that, but I did write a children's book this year with one of my best friends, Ben Hart. Um, it came from our personal experience of seeing our kids together and seeing it just a very polarizing political culture seep into our kids' daily lives of our kids we're seeing in us and them. And even at our dinner table, we were getting heated when we were talking about things. This is, you know, over the last five years, four years. And we wanted to create some language uh, and in a children's book to help. And so, I mean, it's not crazy far off to understand that red plus blue equals purple, but it's just, we didn't want our kids looking around and seeing enemies. We wanted them to see constructive conversations, even within disagreements. We wanted a social identity that positions them towards their fellow humans. And so we tried to come up with five great pillars that no one could argue with on any side. And being purple means asking really great questions, laughing a lot, using your voice, being a hard worker, but also being totally and uniquely you and attentive to your own experience. So we really just we didn't want any of this corrosive political divide to seep into our kids. We wanted it. It's 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 not about anything other than looking towards your fellow human beings, listening to their experiences and telling them yours. And we like to say the only way to be purple is to just be you because you're the only you we've got. And it's not you know, it's not a secret that we wrote it for kids, because if we wrote it for adults, the kids wouldn't read it. But if we wrote it for kids, the adults would have to read it to them. So it's just a a polite reminder that there's not an us in them and we can still disagree and we can still use our voice, but
0: we got to
1: live together and it's okay if you disagree with people and it's okay if someone has a different experience and you should want to hear as many stories as possible, but we wanted our kids to have a social identity that positions them towards their fellow human beings.
0: Are you a good mom? I think so. (laughs) I can tell.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things I'm most confident in.
0: Actor Kristen Bell. She's been working on a new movie with Vince Vaughn called Queen Pins during quarantine. It's about a pair of housewives who run a multi-million dollar coupon scam. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo and Carrie Donahue. Our editor is Zach McNeese, and our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our theme song is by Miles Davis.